Well, I uh, appreciate the opportunity. You know, <clears throat> answering the phone, it, it, uh, uh, it's a funny thing because that's a cultural thing I've learned here that people do not answer their phone. Um, but the reason I answered my phone, because I was 29 years old when, when actually my wife and I had our first landline, okay? Um, under communism, it was controlled, so we didn't, we couldn't, so I enjoy it all the time when I can, when I can talk someone over the phone, so I, I try to, try to do that, but I noticed that this is a, um, that doesn't happen very often. Even sometimes I pick up, uh, um, you know, scam calls and just have a chat with people. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I, I was thinking, okay, I think I need the slides. Do I? Uh, the, okay. I have a clicker. So what I was thinking and praying, uh, I, I know you guys, I know this church for for a long time. And um, I think I never shared uh, what I'm going to share. This is not going to be a um, a typical sermon. It's going to be something personal. And um, I wanted to go deep in because the, the the Lord recently in the past year really worked in my heart, uh, and I, I shared this with our staff as well. Uh, why are we involved in mission? And why we need to keep pursuing mission? Uh, there are so many things. Yeah, that's, that's that. Uh, there are so many things happening. And sometimes it, could, it can be discouraging as we look around uh, in the world. Why should we keep pursuing mission? And... Um, this is just a recent picture of a family event that happened. Um, our daughter got married. And um, so this is just to introduce our family. And um, in the middle, the young, the young fellow uh, with the hat, the top hat, is the, the new son-in-law. He's uh, uh, an Englishman. And um, so we're still learning to communicate with him. They, they speak some weird form of English. Well, they, they say that, that, well, Americans are ru- ruined our language. I, I don't know which one is true. It doesn't matter. We still work on getting to understand him. Uh, but, uh, but that was a glorious moment. So, so there are going to be four things I'm going to touch on uh, why we pursue mission, the growing missional gap in the U.S., only the gospel offers uh, real solution and real, real healing. Only the gospel addresses the real problem. And only the gospel rescues from the ultimate danger. So when we talk about motivation, personal motivation, and there are going to be some passages I'm going to read uh, later, but <clears throat> when we talk about personal motivation, it's, it's, um, there are two things that's, that's true about that. One is just, it, in, um, it comes from your convictions, which is your relationship to truth, and also comes from your experiences, which the story that God wrote through your life, and that can be emotional. So those two things come together, and that becomes 
your motivation. So some might not be, you know, related to, uh, to you, but that's my story. And that's how God shaped me, why I'm part of this mission, what we're doing. Uh, the first thing I, I want to say is something about the need. Why are we, we involved uh, in the mission? And it's the growing missional gap in this nation. We, we, uh, as you know, we moved to the U.S. about five and a half years ago. We led, uh, you know, crew, Campus Crusade for Christ in, in Hungary and got involved under communism and um, never thought we were going to come to the U.S. Until we started to understand the significance and the magnitude of the need and the impact that it's going to have on the whole world where Christianity is heading and the gospel is heading in this nation. So right now, the United States ranks sixth with the most non-Christians in the world. Something we have never, you guys probably have never thought it could happen. So those are the countries, if you look at, you know, China is number one, India, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and United States. Wow. We never thought we are going to be a part of that group. 160 million Americans right now consider themselves as post-Christians, non-Christians. Uh, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the Bible. And that number is growing 4% every single year. 4% with 2.5 million people leaving the church every year. And 4,000 churches closes every year in this nation. So that's one. So there's this rapid decline. The, the other, it's not just the decline, but what happened with those who are still going to church. How do they think and feel about the truth of the gospel? You would think that they are Christians. Well, let me tell you, this is a brand new study. Uh, it's called the State of Theology in the United States. Let me quote a couple of things from this. Okay, look at this one. 43% of churchgoers self-identified evangelical Christians in America say that Jesus was not God. 43% of Americans are going every Sunday to church. They say, Jesus was a great man, but he was not God. Okay, let's look at another one. 48% of them are saying that God changes. God adopts to new service. God learns from us as we evolve in the cultural dialogue. So, yeah, God supports gay and God supports, you know, transgender and God, yeah, that's totally, you know, that's the mentality. 48% of churchgoers, self-identified evangelicals in America. Okay, uh, 65% of churchgoers in America say that we are born innocent. We're born innocent. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches that we're born in sin. Yet, I don't know what they hear, what kind of Bible they read, if they read at all, but that's what they believe. Okay, uh, 62% 
of them say the Holy Spirit is not real. So even that this is, and, and, and it goes on, or 37% of Christians in this nation are saying gender identity is a matter of choice. It's not God created you, male or female. It's your choice. Wow. We have a very significant problem. Uh, this next one also sh- shows something. Uh, let's read this one. 51% of church attenders not knowing what the Great Commission is. Only 17% of churchgoers in this nation heard what the Great Commission is. So obviously, there is a very significant uh, problem. Right now in the U.S., this is also a recent research by Exponential, 70% of the churches are subtracting in the United States, so declining, 70%. Okay, 22.6% are growing through transfer growth, meaning that you know, one church is closes and they gain the, the numbers. Or there's a new church in, in the block and everybody tries that new church. 7% are growing through mission type of work. So they really try to, to baptize and, and, um, and convert people. And only 0.4% multiplies, which means that they planted a church which plants a church. So that's, um, that's the, the sad reality. So the need is just huge. If you add all that to the cultural um, debate and the cultural um, decline that we see, this is the most significant to me. These issues with the church, because the church should be the backbone of any society that that brings together the glue in the society, the values. You know, every every nation has three layers. There's an economic layer, there's a geographical layer, and there is a a value or or a a belief, uh, a shared ethos, shared values that holds them together. Typically, when there are wars, they attack the economic or geographical area. And you can easily protect yourself against those economical interests or geographical things. But when a nation's glue, which is the systemic values, the shared ethos is attacked, then there is no, there's just no way to... Fight against that. And that's what we witness right now in the U.S. That shared glue is the the fabric of the society is dismantled. And the only thing that could bring it together is the church. And we are not in a good shape right now. So that's what, that's one thing that motivates me. Now the other is, uh, and because of that, this this is important. Let me say something here. America is not, America has access to the gospel geographically, but because people could walk 
to a church or turn on some radio station or read a gospel literature. But America is a rejected access. This is what I mean by that. Uh, America rejects Christianity. So although they have access to it, they reject it. Because they view Christianity as dangerous. You know, if, if you look at the media, they, you know, there's a big part of the society that thinks that Christianity is very dangerous. They, uh, they think Christianity is, is a political message. And they identify Christi- the, the gospel message with a political message. And, uh, and we, we wrongly embrace this manifest destiny that we are the most important nation in the world. And if you look at the world right now, 4% of the world's population are Americans, and we use 25% of the world's resources. Yet God cares about the 96% of the world's population as well, equally. So there, there are a lot of issues why, why America rejects Christianity. So access is not geographical, but a cultural issue in the U.S. right now. So that's, that's a huge challenge. How do, we, how do we overcome that? And that's what that should motivate us for the mission. But the mission needs to be a, a different one. And maybe later at lunch we can talk about that. Now, the other uh, motivation that I have, oh gosh, I'm not going to talk about that. These are, these, are, these are just, you know, there's the, the, remember the passage in, in, um, in Ecclesiastes? I don't know how you feel about Ecclesiastes. Sometimes it's very depressing to read that book. It's like, oh, there's no meaning, no purpose in life. All that. There's, there's one passage in, in chapter 1, I think verse 18, says that, that um, those who increases knowledge increases sufferings, increases sorrow or grief. And I, I never understood this passage until I moved to the U.S. You start to dig in and understand reality, and you become depressed. I mean, it's, it's sorrowful to learn about these realities. Yet, also in Ecclesiastes 11, I think verse 14, there's another fascinating passage, which says that he who, it's kind of like contradicts these two, but, okay, now you're depressed? Okay, <laughs> really sorrowful? Because of all you have learned, now he says that, okay, he who considers the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So in this, he encourages us, he said, okay, they're the clouds, they're the winds, keep sowing. Because if you only pay attention to all the problems around you, and you stop sowing, and you just try to calculate what's going to happen, and am I going to be, are we going to bring any fruit in? Then what happens, you're not going to reap. So keep sowing. Yes, there is wind. There, there, there are storms, but 
the seed was made for the soil. And the soil was made for the seed. And once they meet, they're going to bring fruit. But because God is at work, God wants to use you. There are good soil out there. The gospel is still the power to save. And God controls that. Never listen to non-sores when it comes about sowing. There are just too many out there who are talking, oh, it's not. They're a good soil. And uh, what I just wanted to point out here, just in our, our, our ministry, in church movements, we have about 100 staff. And five years ago, we had 44. God blessed us with some growth. Every single month in the past five years, every month, 944 people heard the gospel every month because of our staff going out, sowing the seed. 34 made a decision every month. That's almost 3,000 people in the past five years made a decision. Now, you would say, well, that's, that's a very low percentage. That's about 4%. That's right. You talk to 100, per, 100 people, probably four will make a decision. Okay, but it's, it's just a lot of sowing. But there are good soil out there. We just need to find them. Okay? Uh, 102 people were established in their faith every single month in the past five years. Um, 72 people per month were integrated into communities, into small groups. Four new churches were planted every single month through partnerships that we started. 20 training events were hosted every month. So... um, that's, that's that. Now, let, let, me, let me go more to a, a personal level. Why? Okay, this, the need motivates us. And also the fact that God is at work. Let me, let me go one level deeper. Why? Personally, through our personal story, how God motivated us and why we are involved in, mis, in, in mission. The, um, Dan Ellender, I don't know if you know this author, he's a, a, a Christian author, he, he writes that God is not merely the creator of our life. He is also the author of our life. And he writes each person's life to reveal his divine story. Or in our story, God shows us what he's up to and he, what he wants us to be about. So your story, he invites God, you to co-author your story with him. Get to know your story. And, and what he tries to tell through your story about your call. And this is what, what God tells me about my story. You know, um, we all are born into the stories of other people. Now, if we like it or not, we are just a sequel to the story of our parents and our, our grandparents. We are born into their story. We are born into their victories and we're born into their brokenness. And um, we're, we're born into their dysfunctions and problems. And the sins of our ancestors leave a mark on us. But we can't ignore the impact that their story has on ours. So my personal story is, is flowing out of our family story, which is woven into the tragic story of our nation. 
uh, are, you know, we're, we're from Hungary, and um, fascism and communism left their deep and cruel marks, not just on the nation, but on our family as well. So after the First World War, our country lost two-thirds of our territories and half of our population. Soon after that, in the, in the 1930s, the tragic signs of Jewish persecution uh, started to show up. And my mother's side of the family um, had been deeply impacted by that. The only survivor of that part of the family is my great-grandfather. All his siblings perished in the Holocaust, parents, everybody. So, and all his wealth. He was a very wealthy businessman uh, who had businesses in Switzerland and all over Europe. And everything was gone. And the whole family was gone. Okay? And then, okay, you think everything is over. Finally, the, the Nazis are out. Now, the Soviets are coming. You know? Communists. And... Um, so my grandmother, you know, when the, when the Soviet army came in, uh, they raped all the women. You know, they raped my grandmother. She became pregnant. Uh, Twelve Russian soldiers raped her, and my mother witnessed that. Okay? And uh, then she had, later on, she had 17 abortions. Okay? And... Um, so my great-grandfather, being the only survivor of the family, then seeing her da- his daughter uh, being you know, abused terribly, all the losses. So there's a, there is a reason why that generation is called the silent generation. They were silent about their trauma. They never talked about that. But he turned to the bottle. And that bottle became the painkiller for him. And then, you know, at the end of the, end of the war, the second war, my great uncle had been taken to the Soviet gulags, uh, which is the forced, it's, it's a, like a concentration camp in, the, in Siberia. Very few people survived. No one knew if he was alive or not. He showed up after 11 years at his wife's doorstep. She was waiting for him. And um, um, in the 1950s, was really dark times, and my father uh, and my grandfather and my grandmother, they were deported, which uh, I still have the, the letter of that deportation, which meant that they, had, they only could carry one little suitcase with them to the place where they had to leave. They, they had to work. They were forced into labor, and they lived in a very, very small little room. That was all. My grandfather got a stroke there and died. Um, and um, that, that was the, the communist form of slavery, you know, the, the deportation. And, and by the way, uh, just on the side note, cancel culture is the rehearsal for forced labor because they canceled these people. They, first, they took their jobs. Then they took their wealth. Then they took their freedom. So when you see cancel culture in this nation, 
get ready. That's just a rehearsal of what's coming. Because they are not satisfied just by canceling your voice. They want to cancel your whole life, your whole existence. That's the point. Okay, it's not just your opinion, your life. So then 1956 came, and, and uh, you know, my father, my mother, who's, you know, a, 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 from a, a once wealthy Jewish family, and then my father from a once noble family, equally poor, they met, they, uh, they got married, they wanted to escape the country during the 1956 revolution. Uh, and a 19-year-old soldier tried to help them cross the Hungarian-Austrian border. They got caught. They immediately shot the soldier, not the 19-year-old soldier. They were t- thrown in prison. Um, my mother just finished high school at that time. Every single guy in the high school, every single one of them was murdered. There was not one guy left, just girl. So then, um, you know, different relatives were just murdered during that time. So, so the bottom line is that, that um, the horror of the war, fascism and co- communism, left a lasting mark on the family and also on my wife's family. I mean, uh, you know, her grandfather buried two little babies they, because they couldn't feed them. Okay, they starved to death. So all the, these kind of horrors, uh, that's when my story enters into the family story. And uh, I came as an unplanned surprise. They had no plan with me but one, which was abortion. Uh, but someone, uh, a friend of my mother, just talked her into keeping me. So I was born unwanted. The word prophetically shadowed my childhood. And um, I don't have time to go into this, but the whole brokenness that the family went through because of the surrounding history made the family itself broken. My father was extremely abusive. I had to run away when I was 13. They got a divorce. I had to appear before the judge. Uh, There were all kinds of uh, terrible things. The the doctors told my mom that I'm going to be dead by the age of 18 or 20 because of sicknesses. I spent 200 days in the hospital in one year. Um, But finally, uh, after some incidents, at 13, I ran away from my father. My father chased me with the police. They couldn't find me. Uh, It's a a whole different story. But I was completely destroyed by him. Completely. Physically, I mean, uh, I was destroyed. I stuttered. Mentally, I, I was so destroyed, but when I was in eighth grade, the teacher told my, my poor mom, she said, this kid is so dumb, don't even try to put him in high school. So it, it was pretty bad. So here I'm at age 13 at the end of 1979, deeply wounded without any hope or family or country in my personal life was complete darkness. Generations after generations were destroyed. There's just no hope. So how do you live a life not repeating all of that? 
not repeating all what happened in the past. How do you heal from that? How do you forgive your father who brutally abused you? How do you forgive your country? How do you forgive the Soviets? How do you forgive the, uh, the neighboring countries who took half of your territories or two-thirds of your territories and half of your population? Okay? Um, how, do you be, how do you not become hateful, resentful, hopeless, or a radical nationalist who want to kill everybody or a radical communist or just a an alcoholic who's just sink in the pain deep wounds don't heal fast my healing came slowly my high school year were the first firm firm steps toward god growing up in a communist environment i've heard nothing about jesus not one thing and um but i remember the first encounter I had with someone who was, I thought he came from the moon because he told me that God loves me. And then he can be my heavenly father. And I thought, you are completely insane. Nobody believes in God and in Jesus in this. But, um, but he gave me a Bible. And I started to think, if God can be my father and he's not abusive, he cares for me. He loves me. Well, maybe, maybe I want that. And then I opened the Bible, which I would not recommend to anyone to do, you know, like open the Bible and God will say something. Okay. But literally that's what happened. I opened the Bible and God used that and I was pierced. Because I read in Isaiah 54, you will forget the shame of your youth. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. And I thought, I mean, I was just like pierced. And the healing started in my heart. It's like God will gather me with, with everlasting love and compassion. So at age 14, as a new believer, you know, uh, I was so excited for the Lord. I went to the high school, and the first thing I did, I denied the requirements to join the Young Communist Party, which was always required for everybody. It was kind of automatic. And I remember the, the vice principal of the school told me I cut my own throat. I said, I don't mind doing that, but I'm not going to join the Communist Party. And, um, and then... Um, um, later, for nine years, I have not seen my father. Nine years. But, but I started to heal, and I, I knew I have to go back and forgive him. And my mother was furious. She said, I, I don't know how you can go back to, to your father who wanted to see you dead. I mean, he wanted to destroy you, and he told you that I want to see you in a coffin. And then, and then, uh, I said, well, I, can't, I cannot be a prisoner of the unforgiveness. I need to go back and forgive him. And, and, uh, and I, I did that. He rejected that. He thought he's 
a good person, I was a bad kid. And, and there are other, other things. But I kept the relationship with him. I always called him. He always cussed me out <laughs> over the phone. You know, I, I answered the phone. So. <laughs> but but uh, and then, then uh, when he died, he excluded us from his last will, which means that he completely died resentful and hateful. It's a terrible, terrible life. Okay, so but I'm so thankful that Jesus healed me because I was able to live as a free person. So what really motivates me is that only the gospel can heal the wounds. And um, I, I remember that 14 years ago, I hired a guy back in Hungary uh, on staff. And he was, uh, he was a former communist. He was a part, he was a, a member of the Communist Party. His father was. They had all the privileges. And they had all the privileges because it was taken from us. And I, I hired him, and we, I did not know none of that about him. He became you know, a believer, and, and he told me, and, we, and we, we, we talked about the family history. He told me that, how can you still talk to me? I mean, people like all, us took everything from people like you. And they just like, and I said, well, but in Jesus, everything is redeemed. And that's not in between us. I mean, it's, it's over. But, ha- you know, because of Jesus, we don't have to carry on what happened with our ancestors. God healed that. So the... Uh, the, this, is, this is the thing that I want to uh, tell you. The number one thing that people need is not a healed system, but a healed heart. Okay, healing the systems will not heal the heart. But healing the heart will heal the systems. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because I experienced what it's like to be healed. And to be whole. And to be redeemed. And the best thing we can do right now in this country is not to focus on trying to heal the system, but proclaiming the gospel, which will heal the hearts, and that will lead to healed system. So that's, that's the only hope. I, I don't see any other hope, okay? Because parties are coming and going, and I think we're going deeper and deeper in the problems, and, and, and we're going to end up having a civil war, or I don't know what, Okay? Until we all come to the cross, bow down, repent, and have our hearts changed and find forgiveness. Okay, so the, uh, quickly, only the gospel addresses, this is going to be quick, only the gospel addresses the real problem. Okay, um, Hosea, let me, let me read this passage. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Do you recognize that today? They break all bounds, even the bounds of gender, even the bounds of biology. They break it. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. Abortion follows abortion. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish 
of the sea are taken away. My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Hey, you know, all the catastrophe that happens in the world, all the natural disasters, all the global warning, what happens with the sea, what happens with the birds, what happens with the air. You know where it goes back? Oh, they suffer. Of course they suffer. Yeah, animals, the nature suffers. Of course, why? Because there's no knowledge of God. That's why they suffer. Because we do not have the knowledge of God. So nature will suffer. And we will suffer. So what's the solution? Have the knowledge of God. How can they have the knowledge of God? They need to be taught. They need to be the knowledge of God needs to be proclaimed. The gospel is a message that needs to be proclaimed. It's the good. So that's what's going to bring solutions. Okay, we can talk about all the, oh, you should drive this car or that car or, you know, don't use gas or whatever. No. First, have the knowledge of God. Then we can start solving the problems. Okay, only focusing on the, uh, on the symptoms and not giving the cure equals with murder. So if the church is not proclaiming the gospel, then we're going to contribute to the murder. All those problems. Okay. Um, Dost, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote a brilliant novel. Uh, it's called The Brother Karamazov. Uh, if you have a chance to read it, please do. Okay. Uh, in this novel... Brother, Karamaz- uh, Brother Karamazov, K-A-R-A-M-O-Z-M, K-A-R-A-M-A-Z-O-V. Okay. Um, and in that, he argues, it's a, it's a long novel about three brothers, fascinating story, if you, love, if you like to read stories. But in that, he argues and, and, and is telling to the to his age is revolutionists and telling them that, hey, throwing over the monarchy and, and re- rebelling against the Tsar and establishing a new system will not solve anything because the problem is it's in the heart. So, and wasn't he right? They, they well, said, we don't need the Tsar. We're going to build a better system. Well, they built the worst system in the world, which led to 60 million uh, Russians' violent death, unprecedented in history, in the name of justice, in the name of building a better system. Because the problem is never the system. The problem is the heart of the person. So, and then finally, um, Oh, this is a quote from Bill Bright, who's the founder of Crew. He says, the solution must begin where the problem begins, with the individual, not with the masses. Society cannot be changed until individuals are changed. And finally, this is the final motivation I want to tell you. Why am I involved in mission and why we should be involved in mission? Is that the gospel rescue only the gospel rescues from the ultimate danger. And the ultimate danger is hell. I know that, that these days in churches, very few teachings about that. Very, we don't like to talk about that. It's, it, it's not 
pleasant to talk about that. But there is a thought. There's one thought that haunts me. And this is that. As far as I can tell, every single of my ancestors are in hell. Except my mother who became a believer and she's still alive. But every single one. And that that's just like, even to think about that, it's terrible. So, uh, I watched my great-grandmother dying when I was 14. I, I was a new believer. I shared Christ with her. I put a, a cassette tape to play sermons while she was dying. So she, maybe she's going to have a glimpse of understanding of the Bible or, or just, just say one little prayer to Jesus, save me. And maybe, uh, maybe she did. I don't know. But all those people, uh, all my ancestors who lived Horrible lives. They lived through two world wars. Jewish persecution. Holocaust. The Soviet gulags. The 1956. Communist regime. They had horrible lives. And now, as far as I know, they never believed in God. That's just terrible. So the thought, it's burdensome to, to me that that the hell is reality, and we need to be motivated by the reality that hell exists. This is, and, and I, I believe the Bible teaches that it's literally true. There is a literal hell uh, for the following reason. Jesus thought it. All those Bible passages, you can take a picture of that and then later read those. The New Testament, the greater New Testament also teaches that. But also, uh, God's love demands hell. Now, this, this might be weird to hear that. Well, I mean, a loving God. How can a loving God send someone to hell? I hear that all the time. Okay, well, let me say, uh, say that. I think God's love is an argument for the existence of hell. Love cannot act coercively, only persuasively. Okay, he cannot ravish. He can only woo. Because he's loving. So love demands that those who do not wish to love him must be allowed not to love him. If you don't want to love him, okay, that's fine. Because I love you, I let you not to love me. And those who do not wish to be with him must be allowed separation. You did not want to be with me. You, you never desired to be with me. I'll let you to not be with me. That's, that's what love says. The, also, God's justice insists on it. Justice demands a reward for good and punishment for evil. So God has chosen not to finalize judgment in this life. And that's why, uh, that's, this is the reason why it's correct to say that life is not fair. But there must be a place of reward for goodness and punishment for evil. Otherwise, life does not make sense. If evil 
is, is not punished. And good is not rewarded, which is the goodness of Christ is not rewarded. Then there is just no meaning in life. Otherwise, just be as bad as possible. Okay? And, um, and the cross presupposes it. The cross is the means of salvation. Jesus endured the great sufferings on the cross. Why the cross if there is no hell? Why? So, no hell to shun, the cross is a shame. There is no significance to the cross if there is no inter- eternal separation from God. So, these, these are the four things that motivates me uh, on staying at the course, staying in mission over three decades and fighting through all the difficulties. It's because of the need, the lostness, and the hopelessness of people. It's because only the gospel can heal, nothing else. No change systems. We can, you know, Republicans can come. Yeah, there might be things better. But people's heart will not be healed. Only Jesus can heal them. Okay? Only the gospel is the solution for the real problems. And only the gospel can save everyone from the eternal consequences and and condemnation. Well, let let me pray while the team is going to come up and and we're going to sing. Okay? Father, we want to praise you for the gospel. That's the power to save us. There's so much wound. There's so much brokenness. So much pain. So much trauma that surrounds us and happened to us. And we caused them. But Jesus, you can identify with all those trauma because you had been traumatized. You're the only one, only God who had been traumatized on the cross. And you, bec- you became like us who suffered, who went through trauma, who went through disappointment, hurt, pain, betrayal, and ultimately death. You experienced all of that. And you rose. And because of that, we have hope. And we have healing. We have redemption. And, and we have ultimate um, savings from the uh, ultimate separation. We're known. We're loved. We're cared for. Just because of that, the gospel. And Lord, give us the passion and the eyes so we could see people as lost. We could see them as they're going to hell. And we could just try to rescue them and grab them and stop them from this ultimate final uh, devastation where they're completely separated and completely unknown. Lord, give us this passion. Give us perseverance to stay on track in the mission. Amen.